My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Glad you're with us today. Uh, we are continuing our study we began last week in the book of Exodus. And I want to make you uh, aware, uh, make sure you all know that there are uh, a few resources available for you. We'd love for you to, to hopefully be a help to you in your personal study of the book of Exodus as we walk along. Uh, uh, there uh, on, our, on Realm and on the website, there is a family uh, worship guide. Uh, specifically for families with children uh, to kind of help you week by week kind of walking through these chapters of Exodus with your kids uh, so the whole family can kind of be journeying through this book together, uh, growing in God's Word together. Uh, Just tool there to help equip you and hopefully be an encouragement to you all. There's also a, a, a devotional guide for just you personally to kind of be going through in your personal study of the book. And uh, beginning next week, we'll also have some uh, ESV Exodus Scripture journals uh, available out here at the resource shelf uh, for $5 if you would like one of those just to help get you in the Word. It has space for the, the passage on one side and, and space to journal on the other and uh, just a, hopefully an encouragement just for us to be in God's Word as individuals and as a body together. Uh, Baptism Sunday is coming up. Uh, excited about that. February 2nd, uh, we have at least one baptism confirmed for that day. We, we're praying for more. I invite you to be praying with us that there would be even more on that day. And if you have not, uh, if you're a believer in Christ and you have not taken that step of being publicly identified with Christ and His church in the act of baptism, we'd love to visit with you, talk with you about that. Well, uh, it, it's uh, so interesting how we uh, human beings can have a tendency of just getting everything completely backwards. Uh, so many of us think that we, we can make an identity of our own for our own selves. Right? We, we think that we are self-defining. We define who we are. And then we, out of that self-made identity, seek to define God for ourselves. People will say things like, hey, I, I'm not religious, I, I'm spiritual, right? I define myself and I can kind of define God for myself. Or I think God is like this, or I, I think God would, would think this way about this, this topic or this situation. Even as Christians, we kind of have this sort of tendency. Uh, you hear it when, when we say things like, I, I just don't like the sound of that. Right? I, I just don't think God is really like that. Maybe it's his sovereignty that you struggle with. Maybe it's his judgment. Maybe we, d- we don't like what he has to say about sex and sexuality. We think that we can kind of cherry pick and choose the things in the Bible that we like and we'll affirm and, and accept those things and the things that we don't like we'll just reject. Right? I like the sound that God, uh, of God being a gracious God, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But I'm not a big fan of God being a consuming fire. Right? who is a jealous God, who brings judgment upon the unrighteous. What is this but us pretending that, that we are self-defining and that we can kind of create God in our own image to suit our own desires and longings, to think of Him the way that we want to think of Him? Or maybe you think along the lines of you know, uh, being on a search for God. I'm, I'm searching for God. I, I'm on the lookout. It's of, course, of course, this search is all your idea. Right? It's all you. 
You've decided to go searching for God because you're hoping that in finding him, he will be able to come in and kind of fill the holes, the gaps, the, the shortfalls, the weaknesses that you see in your own life. And so he'll, he'll fix you up so you can get back onto the path of pursuing your own dreams and goals for your life. You see, all, all of this is backwards. All of this is backwards. You and I, we, we are not self-defining. We are not self-defining. You, you're, you're not in a position to determine for yourself who God is and sort of fashion God into the image and likeness that you prefer. You're not even able of your own free will to go searching for him. No one goes searching for God apart from his calling you first. That's what you see in the Bible over and over and over again. The Bible shows us that it is God who is self-defining. He is the only one who's self-defining. And that God in his goodness and grace, he desires to give us a, a new identity in himself instead of the identities that we're constantly trying to manufacture for ourselves and, and keep, keep up. A secure identity that can never be taken from you. The Bible shows us that, that any search for God begins with God's calling of you first. But when God calls, he doesn't just call you to, to see how you'd, you'd like him to fit into your life. No, when God calls and you meet him personally, to know him is to be given an entirely new agenda for your life. You become a person on mission. You're called and immediately sent. That's what we see in, in the scripture, right? You're sent on mission. You're completely reoriented. And this mission that God calls you to, calls you to do, you are completely inadequate for. And that is by design because he desires that you would be completely dependent upon him. That he might equip and empower you and work in and through you to accomplish his purposes for his own glory. That's what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 is, is God calls Moses. Uh, we see God as he reveals himself to us. We see him as he is. And in that we see his absolute self-sufficiency. That, that we, though, though we are weak and flawed, he is able. That's what we're going to see in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Uh, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. And let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are holy. You are transcendent and so far above us. Lord, we, I am so inadequate to the call, to the mission that you give us. Lord, we acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that while you are above us, you are also among us. And we are thankful for that grace. We're thankful for the grace that you come down to us to rescue us, to call us, to send us, to equip and empower us for for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would speak through inadequate vessels this morning to speak your word to your people, Lord, that we would be shaped by it, that you would have your way with our lives. Lord, that we would hear your call and we would go. And we would, we would trust in you that while we are inadequate, you are able. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Right, in chapters 3 and 4, we, we see this wonderful exchange as God calls Moses. And, and it has, I believe it has much to speak to us uh, about the way uh, God, about who God is and about who we are. Uh, and God, as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he works similarly in our lives. God calls, God sends, God equips and empowers, inviting us to trust that he is able and that he will show his perfect power in and through our weakness. First, God calls. Right? Chapters 1 and 2 have set the stage for what's happening here. God's people, the Israelites, have multiplied and become enslaved in Egypt, uh, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham 
that God would make him into a great nation. They're they're growing into a great nation, as well as a promise that God gave Abraham back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, where we read, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God is faithful to his word. And and this is what we see unfolding in the first two chapters of Exodus. But those chapters, as you read them, they barely mention the name of God. God God is barely mentioned, which which comes in a really stark contrast to what we will see beginning in chapter 3 through the rest of the book. At the end of chapter 2, we read that, that God has heard the cries of his people. He has seen their affliction. He has known their oppression that they are under. And he also knows his covenant promise that he made to Abraham, a promise to make them into a great nation, a promise to give them a land of blessing and rest, and a promise that through that nation he will bless all nations. And in his perfect timing, God is faithfully fulfilling his word as he calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the land of promise. Moses, of course, has fled to Midian. Uh, He was, you know, murdered an Egyptian, uh, is on the run for his life. He runs to Midian. He he gets married. He has a son. And now uh, some years have passed. In fact, if we read elsewhere in the Bible, we'll realize as chapter three begins, Moses is 80 years old, right? He's 80 years old. He's married. He has a son. He's doing the work of a shepherd, looking after his father-in-law's flock. He's out in the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God, which is another name for Mount Sinai, at the mountain of God. And he sees a bush that is on fire. Of course, we are familiar with this bush, right? We refer to it as the burning bush. But here's the thing. The bush is not burning, right? It's not the burning bush. It's, it's, there is a fire that is, is burning, but the bush is not consumed, right? That's what we see in verse 3. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed, it was on fire, but it is not burning up. And, and there's, a, there's a reality with fire, right? If you're like me, you know, in the fall, you love a nice little fire out in the, on the back patio. Uh, and a, a nice fire, it both draws you to it, right? But at the same time, you understand you can't get too close or this will, will end badly, right? This is going to be painful. So most of us, I say most of us because not all of us, a lot of us have a child in particular, maybe in our household, we, we approach a fire, but yet instinctively we keep our distance at the same time, most of us. Uh, and this fire that does not consume the bush, this appearance of the angel of the Lord carries with it so much symbolism. It draws Moses to it, but, but it will more than simply just let Moses feel that he should not get too close. It will tell him, don't come near Right? God is revealing himself to Moses in this burning bush. He, he's revealing some aspects of who he is. Right? Fire throughout the Bible is often a, a, a symbolic a representation of God's glory, his holiness, his purity. Uh, being perfectly holy, we understand God cannot tolerate sin. He cannot bear the presence of sin. He must judge it and he must consume it. God is, after all, called in the scriptures a consuming fire, representative of his perfect holiness. 
But the wonder of this bush and the real thing that, that draws Moses to it is the fact that the fire is not consuming. It's not consuming it, which is revealing more about God. It's not only displaying God's sovereign power over his creation, that he can cause a fire in a bush that does not burn the bush. But, but even more, it, it is displaying his mercy and his grace. It reveals God's gracious presence with his people. People who are sinful and rebellious. Yet God has called them to be a people for himself. To be his people. And in his mercy, he is graciously making a way for, for him to dwell amongst them. To be with them. That's what is symbolized in this bush that will not consume, the fire that will not consume the bush. You see, God's transcendence and his imminence through, through this interaction between God and Moses. When it, when, it, when it comes to people defining God for ourselves, we have a tendency to, to either see God as wholly transcendent or wholly imminent, right? So many people in their imagining God the way they want him to be, they see God as, as so other, right? He, so distant, so disconnected from their lives. You know, he's all transcendence. He's just out there, right? That, that's the view of God in Islam or deism. Uh, many of the founding fathers, you know, deists. Thomas Jefferson famously, right, cut out all the miracles of his Bible. Uh, God is out there. He's disconnected from my life. He's all transcendent, so far above. Sociologist uh, Christian Smith points out that the reality is that so many uh, so-called Christians in the West, in America, in the Western culture, uh, are actually functionally moralistic, therapeutic deists. They're not actually Christians. They're deists. They believe in God, but, but God does not actually affect their everyday lives. He's just sort of like this great counselor up in the sky that you can turn to when you need something from him. But otherwise, you just go along with your everyday life. In contrast to that, others try to define God as wholly imminent, right? He's entirely imminent. That, that's how God is seen in the Eastern religions for the most part and in mysticism and also by people who are just a little too much into Star Wars, right? Like where they think it's real. They see God as being within us, right? And within everything, sort of like the force, He's just in everything, kind of making everything somewhat divine. But the God who is, the one true God, the God who revealed himself to Moses, he is both transcendent and imminent. Both. He's both above us and among us. He is so holy, right? We heard a sermon a few weeks ago on Isaiah 6. He's holy, holy, holy. To emphasize the holiness, the otherness of God. And the word holy really means distinct. It means different. It means set apart. God is not like us. He's holy. He's majestic. He's glorious. He's transcendent. He's above us. As Moses approaches the burning bush, God tells him, take off your shoes. For the ground you're standing upon is holy ground. It's an acknowledgement that God is transcendent. He is not like us. He's not your pal, right? Jesus is not your homeboy. 
He's other. He's above. He tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses immediately hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see that in verse 6. That's a totally appropriate response. God will actually tell Moses in Exodus chapter 33 that no one can see the face of God and live. God is so other, so above us, so transcendent that he demands awe and reverence from us. But then look at what God says in verses 7 and 8. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, I have seen, I have heard, I know, I have come down. God is above us, but he's also among us. And God is present with his people even when they don't sense his presence. Close enough to see and hear what they are experiencing and be concerned and get involved. God is transcendent and he is imminent. He is both above and among. But the reality is that you will only be able to treasure the the wonderful good news that God is among you if you first realize and are awestruck by the reality of how God is so far above you, the wonder that this God who's perfectly holy would have anything to do with us, that he would come down. God's calling of Moses is a reminder to you and me that God is above us and among us. And you might feel like like sometimes God is nowhere to be found, right? That he, 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 you might feel like he's completely forgotten you. And some of you may be feeling that way today with what's going on in your life. You don't understand why God is not answering your prayers. But God says to you, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your struggles, I've seen, I've heard, I know, and I've come down. It says in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Who is the angel of the Lord? There there are times throughout the Old Testament in particular, as we see here, that the angel of the Lord appears to be synonymous with God himself. And yet there are other times that he seems to be distinguished from God, sort of a, a messenger sent by God. Theologians have often understood this angel of the Lord in Exodus 3 to be a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus, who it says in John 1.1, who was with God and was God from before the beginning. In Jesus, God has come down to be Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus who is so far above us, present and active through creation who spoke everything into existence, who's the creator and sustainer of all things, came to be with us. And he's still with us, calling his people to follow him. God calls. God calls. But as we see here with Moses, God never just calls, but immediately God sends. There's a reality that that one of the reasons we're inclined to image God as we'd like him, imagine God as we'd like him to be, is that we're afraid of losing control. 
We're afraid of not being in control of our own lives. You're afraid of not being able to call your own shots. So you invent a God for yourself. Maybe you invent a God of of morality, a God of law, who's all about doing good and doing what's right. So that's a God you can control, right? You can control that God, but all you got to do is you got to be good, right? You got to do what's right. Of course, by your definition of what's moral and good, your measurable definition, you do what you think is good and moral, and you you get to remain in control. You get to be your own savior by your own performance, your own moral performance. Or maybe you invent a God who is just all love, right? He he accepts you as you are. He, He puts no expectations or constraints upon you. You can do whatever you want because he's a God of all love. He just accepts you as you are. So you you can control that God, right? You can do whatever you please. You get to be your own Lord. But you see, you can never personally know and be in relationship with a God like that. Like either one of those. Either the God of moral law or the God of all love. You can never know that God and be known by him. It's only the real God that you can personally know. But once he calls you, once he reveals himself to you, once you know him, he says to you, now go. God calls and he sends. He calls and he sends. He he completely reorients your life because he is Savior and Lord. Look at what happens to Moses in verses 10 and 11. God says to him, you know, I'm, I've seen, I've heard, I know, I've come down to deliver my people. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? To, to, to follow the flow, right? I've seen, I've heard, I know, I've come down, I'm sending you. You're my guy. You're going to do this. I wonder how often it is that we feel like God is absent and silent in our struggles because we're not willing to hear him say, I'm sending you. The rest of chapter 3, most of chapter 4, Moses enters into this extended dialogue with God, essentially built around three questions that are, who am I, right? Who are you, God? And, and, And what if they don't believe me? What do I do if they don't believe me? And God gives Moses a task that immediately Moses feels inadequate for. Because of his own weakness, he feels inadequate. Who am I? Because of Pharaoh's power, you want me to go to Pharaoh? And because of the enormity of the task, you're calling me to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Like, I can't do that. There's no way I, I can do that. He feels inadequate because he is inadequate. It's not a bad question to ask, who, who am I, when you're given that mission? And he, Moses feels inadequate because he is inadequate. He is weak, and Pharaoh is in a position of power, and he is in no way capable of his own will to lead Israel out of Egypt. That, that's really sort of the point. So Moses asked God, who am I? And this is God's response to that question in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. 
But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God's answer to Moses, who am I? I will be with you. What what kind of answer is that? What kind of answer is that? How does that tell Moses who he is? Actually, it's, it's a great answer. It's really the answer. God is telling Moses that, Moses, your identity is tied up with mine. Your identity is tied up with God's identity. You know, our tendency with a friend who's struggling with some enormous task that they feel overwhelmed by is to say things like, hey, we'll just puff them up, right? You got this, right? You're great. You're capable. You could do it. But God says, I will be with you because God is the one who will make the difference. He's the one who will deliver his people. Moses is inadequate, but God is able. And in saying, I will be with you, God is telling Moses, you can walk through this life with me and I will define who you are by your relationship to me. You, can't find, you can find confidence and worth knowing that I am with you and I am for you. And I will always be with you. Your circumstances, your achievements, your failures will not affect the reality of the truth that I am with you and you are mine. That's what God's saying to Moses. And that's what he says in, in the person and work of Christ to us. In Exodus 4.22, similarly, God calls Israel his firstborn son. It's our relationship to God that defines who we are in an unshakable way. In John's gospel in the New Testament, we read this, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, right, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who am I? One of the children of God. That's who you are. If you're in Christ, that's, that's, that is what defines you. You don't define yourself. Right? And even, even our attempts to define ourselves are not us defining ourselves. We're, we're shaped by all these forces around us, the people around us, the places we've experienced, the, the things that we've walked through. We don't define ourselves. But God is able to define you in an unshakable way. All those circumstances, all those things are up and down, changing by the moment. But God says, I will give you an identity that will never be taken from you through faith in Christ. You will be my beloved child. Right? This week, you, you may be a great spouse, you know, a great parent, uh, a, a great child, or you might be the absolute worst of those things. You might be a, a, a terrific student, a, a wonderful worker in your job, or you might be completely lousy. But if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are a child of God. And absolutely nothing, not your performance, not what someone else says, nothing can change that. That means that you can be sent in confidence. Not confidence in what you are capable of. But confidence in the one who is with you. Who defines you by his relationship to you. And what he can do in and through you. 
What a great answer. But Moses, like us, still has more questions. God's answer is, of course, I will be with you, which may naturally then lead to the question, okay, well, then who is exactly this I who says I will be with you? Right? Who is the I who's with me? Look at verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God reveals his name, his personal name to Moses. I am who I am. As Tim Chester kind of points out in his commentary, this is a statement deliberately designed to sort of burst all of our definitions. We normally say, like, I am something, right? I, I, I am this, like, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, you know, I, I'm tall, uh, so on. But this statement circles back on itself. I am who I am. In other words, God is not defined by anything outside of himself. Even more, in the Hebrew, the the verb here is decidedly vague with no particular instance in view. So it could be translated, I have always been who I have always been, which would point to the reality that he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and he will continue to act in accordance with his track record. Or it could be, I am who I am. God is self-defining rather than being shaped by his relationship to others or any circumstances outside of himself. Or it could be, I will be who I will be, for God will determine the future, and God will be what matters in the future. And there is good reason here, good reason that we should assume all of these senses and meanings are in view when God reveals his name to Moses. In verse 15, I am who I am reveals his name, the Lord, right? The Lord, especially when you, specifically the Lord with the all caps, right? The capital O-R-D, the Lord. Have you ever wondered why is it that when it says the Lord, sometimes it's all capitalized and sometimes it's, it's not? Well, this is what, what is happening here. The Lord in all caps, which is the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. This is God's personal name. Later, what happened is the Israelites, they refused to speak God's name uh, for fear that they might do so in some sort of blasphemous way. And so what they do, did was they used the word Lord, the word Adonai in Hebrew, but, but what they would change it here. We see it in, in all caps to kind of distinguish Yahweh from Adonai. So when it's not in all caps, it's Adonai, Lord. But when it's in all caps, it's the word Adonai subbed in in replacement for God's personal name, Yahweh. It's really the name Yahweh. And Yahweh itself is really kind of a a Hebrew wordplay on the, the Hebrew verb to be, meaning he is. Yahweh means he is or he will be. So Yahweh, the Lord, is in other words, the shorthand version of I am who I am. So what are we saying when we say the name Yahweh? Your identity and my identity is shaped by others. You've been shaped by a city 
or a town that you grew up in. You've been shaped by the family that you, you, you were raised by, that you grew up with. The brothers and sisters, if you had brothers and sisters that gr- you grew up with, they've shaped you. The parents you've had have shaped you. The schools that you've gone to, the friends that you've made, the circumstances and situations you've walked through, they have shaped you. They have, they have since sort of given you an external identity, for better or for worse, right? I am a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Right, which means that even when today could be a day of football glory that I have never experienced in my 44 plus years of life where I might see for the very first time my team go to the Super Bowl, the, the promised land of football, I'm already, while reluctantly hopeful, right? I am already simultaneously preparing for doom and devastation. Why is that? Because I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And my entire life has told me that there will be eventual doom and devastation every year in the playoffs. It's just going to happen. And so, but I say that, and today I am reluctantly hopeful because of Hall of Famer Patrick Mahomes. Right? What's the point? What's the point of all that? You and I are constrained by external factors. We're constrained by external factors, but... But God is not. God is not. He will be who he will be. He will do what he will do. He is radically free. Radically free to be and do whatever he wills. But while God is unconstrained by external factors, God is constrained by his own character and his own promises. And he will always act in a way that is consistent with his holiness and consistent with his word. And that, friends, gives us tremendous hope. Because God is not constrained, we can be sure that he can deliver. But because God is constrained by himself, we can be sure he will deliver. He will Yahweh tells Moses to tell the people that he is going to fulfill his word, that he will deliver his people out of Egypt and bring them into the land of promise. Pharaoh will refuse, of course. Yahweh knows. He, he knows that. Yahweh will, will force him to let them go. And he will deliver his people so much so that when they leave Egypt, they will actually plunder the Egyptians in fulfillment to what God told Abraham back in Genesis 15, hundreds of years before. This is how God responds to Moses' questions of who am I and who are you. God calls and God sends. And in calling and sending is an invitation to a deeply personal knowing of God and being known by him. He reveals himself as the sovereign Lord, Yahweh who is able to rescue and who will rescue, who is able and willing to give you an unshakable identity as his beloved child. And to know him is to know that he is more important than anything else. God says to all of his people, if you're in Christ, he says to you, if you know me, my cause, my truth, and my people are more important than your safety, your comfort, and your bank account, and your reputation. He says to you, I want you to live for your Christian brothers and sisters, not for yourself. 
I want you to live for your unbelieving neighbors. I want you to live for my glory, not for your own. To make his name known. To invite others to know him. It's the mission that he gives, that he sends all of us on. Jesus says to his disciples, and and that's not to church leaders, that's not to vocational missionaries. He says to anyone who is in Christ, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And what does he say? And surely I am with you. I am with you. It's at the end of the age. Here you are, seeking fulfillment, seeking to complete yourself, and God is saying, the only way that you will be fulfilled is if you hear my call, now go. What could possibly enable you to do that? What could possibly empower you to go? Well, to remember maybe what Jesus said, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them there, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Jesus says, I am Yahweh. I am. I am. He's the God who came down for you, who lived for you the sinless life that you couldn't. And died the death that you deserved in your place for your sins and rose victorious over the grave. He's the God who has delivered you from slavery to sin and death. What a gift it is to live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. But Moses still has questions. And Yahweh is so patient to meet him where he's at. He's patient to meet you where you're at today. And and we see that uh, in this, that that God equips and he empowers. God equips and empowers. In chapter 4, Right, Moses, Moses essentially uh, says, what if they don't believe me? Right? It's, it's, he asks some other questions here and makes some other protests, but, but it all kind of boils down into this. What if they don't believe me? And God graciously responds by giving and equipping Moses with signs to do before the people. Right? The sign of the staff. Right, the staff, he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. He grabs it by the tail, becomes a staff again. The sign of his hand, he, he sticks his hand into his cloak, he pulls it out, it's leprous. He sticks it back into the cloak, he pulls it out, it's been restored, it's been cleaned. And God says, if my people will not believe those two signs, then take water from the Nile and, and pour it out on the ground and it will turn to blood. Moses, of course, then protests, right? I'm not a great public speaker, Lord, right? I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a way with words. Words are hard, right? Uh, and Yahweh's response is to say, who has made man's mouth? Like, I'm with you. Am I not enough to equip you to say what you need to say? I'm sure no one in here has ever said, man, I, I know God tells me to go to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, but I don't know what to say. I'm not great with words. I'll mess it up. And he says, I'm with you. Who has made man's mouth? Am I not able to give you the words that you need to say? 
By the way, it's not you that's going to convince someone to trust in Christ anyway. God uses you as his ambassador, as the vessel through, through whom he transforms hearts, awakens them to faith, and rescues them. Is he not able to speak in and through you? And Moses, I'm sure we can't relate, right? Please send someone else, God. Like, not me, someone else. There's got to be somebody better for this job. And even though this is, ang- this is stirring up anger, righteous anger within Yahweh, he is so patient and gracious with Moses. And he tells Moses that his brother, Aaron, can go with him, right? That Aaron, your brother, can be your mouthpiece before the people. Now, seeing this, God is equipping, God is empowering, God is blessing Moses with, with, with support in, in so many ways. And as you near the end of chapter 4, uh, this is kind of a sidebar, but like I know some of you are going to read these verses if you haven't already and be like, what is happening in verses 24 through 26 here? Like, okay, like I don't understand. So let me just, and not, my, the short answer is, I don't know. But let's try to walk through it a little bit together. Is, so at the end of chapter 4, uh, Yahweh has just instructed Moses that he is to go to tell Pharaoh, right? He's going to, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, right? But yet Moses and, and God is going to work through that hardening to, to show his glory, to rescue his people. And yet Yahweh has instructed Moses that he's to go tell Pharaoh that Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son and to let my son go that he may serve me and to tell Pharaoh that if he refuses that God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And then you come immediately to verses 24 through 26. And, and there is a lot of uncertainty among scholars and, and commentators about what is exactly happening here. But perhaps the best explanation that I've read um, is, is this. That this is a, but a small foreshadowing in Moses' own life of the Passover, which is to come. Right? Moses has apparently neglected... Uh, it seems to be, again, it's very unclear, right? Who's the him that God's trying to kill? It doesn't say. It just says, you know, he came, uh, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Uh, it seems likely that we could assume from some things here maybe what's happening. But the, again, the, this would be me standing over here saying assumptions here. Moses has apparently neglected to circumcise his son, which is, which is of course, the sign of God's covenant promise with Abraham, right? The non-negotiable mark of divine sonship for Israel is circumcision. And Moses has basically treated and regarded his son as an Egyptian. He's neglected God's command. And so Moses himself stands outside of that mark of sonship under the same judgment as Pharaoh. And Moses, in this moment, right, the Lord seeks to come to destroy. Moses' wife springs into action, circumcises their son, puts the blood on display, sort of like on the doorpost in the Passover, covering Moses with it so that the Lord will not kill him, that his judgment will pass over. It's sort of a bizarre mini-Passover. That's the best 
understanding I have of it. But, but following that, that series of, of events, at the end of chapter 4, what I really want you to see is that Moses and Aaron, they gather together the elders of the people. Aaron speaks, he performs the signs of the staff and the hand, and the people believe, and they worship Yahweh. The people believe, and they worship Yahweh. And this, this shows us that God is faithful to equip and empower his people for the mission that he gives them. He equips Moses with signs, with community in the form of his brother to go with him, with grace, with patience. And God empowers and works through Moses and Aaron to move people to believe and to worship. And Jesus does the same for you and me. He equips with signs. Like, what, what cool magic tricks are we going to get to do? No, not, not signs like that. Mainly the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right? Signs of his faithfulness to his promises. Baptism, of course, is the sign of identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. And identification with his church. A beautiful symbol that we have, that we have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a marker, right? If you're a believer in Christ in this room and you haven't experienced the sign of baptism, I would love to talk with you about that. I would love for you to grab one of our pastors before you leave here today. To at least to set up a time to ask questions and learn more about it. Even more, though, the Lord would love for you to experience this powerful marker of his grace in your life doesn't save you. It's a sign of how God in Christ saves you through faith in him. And then there's also the Lord's Supper, right? The bread and the wine that point us to Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed to pay for our sins, that the Lord's, that the Lord's judgment might pass over us because it was executed on Christ in our place and that we might instead find favor and grace in him. These signs that confirm to us God's promise and his good news for us. Jesus equips us with those signs, markers to remember, to know who he is, what he's done, what he will continue to do. Jesus equips us with community. He doesn't send us out as isolated individuals. Like He doesn't call and send you. Like the mission to take the gospel to the nations is all on you, individual. He sends his church he sends his church and its local expression to be on mission together, to live out the gospel in the way we love and serve and forgive one another, and to share the gospel in word and deed as we reach out to our neighbors and invite them into relationship and connect them to the broader community of faith and open our mouths and give a verbal witness of his grace. Jesus gives us grace. He equips us with grace. He covers us with his own blood, his own righteousness. He extends patience with us. And he is able, he is able to work powerfully in and through you and me to move others to know and believe and worship him. Do you believe that? God is calling you. God is calling you. He has come down and made himself known. Even more than the way he made himself known in a burning bush to Moses, he has made himself known to you and I in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has come down. He's put on human flesh and entered our world to rescue his people. 
in the cross and the empty tomb, we have the ultimate signs. The ultimate signs that God is able and willing to rescue his people. We see the holiness of God and the reality that, that there is judgment for sin that must be carried out and that it was carried out at the cross of Christ in his death. We see the power of God to defeat Satan, sin, and death in the glorious resurrection of Jesus. And we see the grace of God because Jesus lived and died and was raised in our place to give us life in him. Freely. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift through faith in him. Jesus told him, uh, told us himself that he is Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. He is self-defining and he is calling you But as soon as he calls you, he sends you. He sends you. You might know him. You might trust in him. And you might live for his glory. That in living for him, you might lose yourself. And and by that, I mean the version of yourself that you've sought to create on your own. And that in losing yourself, you might find yourself. The real you. God's beloved child. His son, his daughter, and know that he is with you. He's with you. The Lord's Supper is given to us as a sign of of God's faithfulness and grace. It is meant to encourage and equip us to know that Jesus is with us and at work in and through us. We read in 1 Corinthians that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we take of the bread and the cup, remembering Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed to rescue us, to show us who God is, to show us his his absolute otherness and his with usness, right? His transcendence and his imminence. And we take it, we take it looking forward to the day that we will feast with him again in glory, knowing that he's coming for us to fully deliver us from sin and death. Believers, you're invited as we continue to worship here to come forward to share in this meal. We, we share in it by breaking off a piece of the bread, just tearing it off and dipping it in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, it's a meal that's reserved for Christians. You don't want the symbol without first responding to the real thing. And so the invitation for you is to take Christ in faith, to consider what he's done for you, how he's lived and died and been raised for you, and to respond with saving faith in him. There'll be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. We'd love to visit with you, love to pray with you about anything that you're going through. But friends, he's calling you. He's calling you and he's sending you to join him in his work. You are inadequate. But he is able. Now go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are not just a God who is above us, but that you are a God who is among us. In the person and work of your Son, you have revealed yourself to us, your holiness and your mercy, your great love and your justice. where we are completely inadequate 
to get ourselves together, you have made us right with you. And you call us and you send us. And you send us on mission that we are completely inadequate for. But you are with us. And you are at work within us. And you long for us to know you and rely upon you and be completely dependent upon you for everything. To live for you in every way. Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see your grace, to see your goodness, to see you as you are. And then we would know you. We would know your grace. And Lord, we would live for your glory. Answering your call. Joining you on the the mission you send us on. For your glory and for the joy of many people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.